Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you. If you've been here for any length of time, you know we're in a series called Ambassadors. And a few weeks ago, I taught on a passage in Matthew 28. You remember what that passage in Matthew 28 says? Remember what the main command is in that passage? What is it? Say, you know it. Make disciples. Make disciples. The difficulty with teaching on that and asking you to do that is you can't make disciples. You can't do that unless you know what I'm about to teach tonight. It's impossible. You can't rightly fulfill that command. You can't rightly obey God unless you know the gospel to make disciples. Okay, so disciples aren't made by uh, merely hard work or by clever words. Disciples are made, people are converted to God by hearing the Word of God, by understanding and hearing the Gospel. Okay? Last week, Matt taught on what the Gospel wasn't. You remember that passage from Galatians 1, 6-9? through nine? said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel. So we have a command, go and make disciples. And we have this. This is what the gospel is not. Don't do this. Don't understand it this way. Don't do this with the gospel. This is not the gospel. That's what Matt taught on. Let me tell you, tonight we're going to talk about what the gospel is. The tremendous privilege of teaching you what the Word of God says about how you can find life in Christ. Let me read this quote to you from Paul Washer. There is no word of truth of greater importance than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scriptures are full of many messages, the least among them being more valuable than the combined wealth of the world and more important than the greatest thoughts ever formed by the mind of man. If the very dust of scripture is more precious than gold, then how can we calculate the worth of the importance of the gospel? Even within the scriptures themselves, the gospel message has no equal The story of creation, though lined with splendor, bows before the message of the cross. The law of Moses, the words of the prophets, point away from themselves into this singular message of redemption. Even the second coming, though full of wonder, stands in the shadows of the gospel. It is no exaggeration to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one great and essential message, the apocalypse of the Christian faith and the foundation of the believer's hope. Friends, beloved, what we're going to talk about tonight is the crux. It's at the center. It is the epicenter of Christianity. Unless you understand this, there's a sense in which you understand nothing. Not only can you not make disciples, you cannot be a disciple. What we're going to talk about tonight is of utmost, utmost importance. This is at the epicenter of Christianity. I want to talk to you. There's two groups tonight in this room. I hope you understand that. There's believers and there's unbelievers. There's Christians and those who aren't Christians yet. Okay? Believers, this is the message. This is what I want you to walk away with tonight. When you hear the gospel, I want you to be able to rejoice. I want this to pour fuel on the flame of worship in your life. As I rejoice with you in what Christ has done, what He has performed, I want you to be fueled to worship. I want your heart to be filled with joys of the precious truths of the Gospels. I want you to grow in the fear of God. I want you to bear fruit. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. That's my prayer. That's my hope. And if you're not a believer yet in Christ, here's your job tonight. Listen closely. You have a very important job. 
you need to understand that your job tonight is not to decide whether you like what I'm about to say. Not even if you agree with what I'm about to say, but if what I'm about to say is true. Is the message I teach tonight true? Is it from God's Word? Is it full of truth or is it full of error? That's a very important job. If it's true, then that changes everything for you. So believers, be built up. Let this spray gasoline on the fire of worship in your life. Unbelievers, test these words against the words of Scripture. The Spirit pierce your heart and do a work in your life tonight. The Gospel starts here. A.W. Tozer said this, uh, it might well be said that the most important thing about a man is what, he, what comes to mind when he thinks about God. The most important thing about a man is what comes to mind when he thinks about God. What comes to mind when you think about God? This is where the Gospel starts for you. I want you to grab your sheet, your handout, if you don't already have one. Okay, there's one on, the, on each of your chairs, and we're going to use this tonight. This is a simple tool that was put together by the Cross Life staff. And it's for you. There'll be one on your chair tonight. There'll be one on your chair next week. If you come both weeks, one is to give away. If you come one week, you still need to know and learn and be poured into. But these will be available tonight. One, there'll be one next week. Tonight, we'll cover the front of this sheet. Next week, we'll cover the back of this sheet. There's nothing special about this sheet except for this. Listen, it contains the very Word of God. That's special. That is not my word. That's a word of God that's infallible. That's inerrant. That works in our hearts and minds and lives and pierces us to the soul. Okay, so we'll work through this. I want this to be a tool. One, for you to know and love and remember and memorize. Two, for you to be able to articulate and use with someone else. If you turn it over on the back, you'll notice that there's a spot at the bottom for your name. If you have a pen, you can go ahead and write your name in there. Okay, this is for you. And this is eventually for you to give to someone else. You know what I say about these sheets? One thing about them you need to understand, they have an expiration date. They're not for you to hold on to forever. If you hold on to them forever, they'll go bad. You need to give them away. Okay, so if you come next week, then you'll have two, and you can give one away. You can keep one to, to study. Okay. Listen to this. Uh, the devil would gladly lay, this is what one preacher said, the devil would gladly lay a Bible in the hands of every man and promote obedience to every command in exchange if he would give him the gospel. What we're going to talk about tonight using this sheet, talking about the character of God, is not talked about, is not accepted in the world. It's foolishness to the world. And let me go a step further. The gospel that we're going to talk, to, talk about tonight is not accepted in most of Christendom. The message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And even those to, who profess faith who are on the inside of the church often disagree with what we're going to talk about tonight. That's why it's so important that we started last week with what the gospel is not. Now we're going to talk about what is the gospel. And the gospel starts here, who is God? You must understand who is God. It's the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think of God? Do you think of a gray-bearded man, more like a Santa Claus figure, waiting in heaven to answer you every whim of prayer? Or do you think about the biblical God? The first thing that you need to understand about God is this. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God. The One who was and is and always will be. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. In the beginning, God. 
God always was. He always will be. God breathed, spoke this world into creation. In the beginning, God. God is the creator. He is the owner. He is our judge. What does your sheet say about God? God is holy. That means He's unique and pure. It means He's set apart from the rest of His creation. What else does it say? It says that He's just. Friends, that means that He is fair and true. Whatever He does is right. Ultimate judge. He is just. Exodus 15.11, you'll see on your sheet there, says, Who among the gods is like You, O Lord? Who is like You? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glory and working wonders. Here's the question. Who's like God? No one. There's none that can answer that. No one is like this God. God is holy, set apart, and entirely perfect. I want you to turn to Revelation, the last book in your Bible. I want you to go to chapter 4 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. We just established that God is the Creator, that He's holy and just, that He's pure and fair and true. What many of us fail to understand is what Revelation 4.11 says. Worthy are You, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because You created all things and because of Your will, they existed and were created. God created all things. We established that. Now what? We're indebted to Him as His creation. He is our owner, our judge, our exactor. God is judge over all. Because He created, we're not autonomous. We are not self-reliant. We cannot be self-absorbed because we owe our lives. We are indebted to another. Are you with me? God is entirely separate. Though He made man and women in His image, man and women fell. And that image was perverted. And so God is entirely separate, distant, unique from us. Deuteronomy 32.4, you'll see the cross reference at the bottom says this, The rock, His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. God is right and true and fair. And whatever He does, whatever He does is right. That's where the Gospel starts. Beloved, if it doesn't start there, we miss it. We miss the fact that God is the Creator, the author of the Gospel. And He's the Creator, friend, of you and I. The Gospel must start there with a proper understanding of God. God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. And God created you and I. Here's the next fundamental truth to understand. We go from God and understanding God who dwells in unapproachable light to you and I. What's your sheet say? That we are sinful, lost, and cursed. Where do I get that from? Where do we develop that from? Well, Romans 3.12 says this, all, in case you wondered, all, everyone has turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Could the Spirit have been any more clear there? All, everyone, all are shut up and enclosed by sin. We are sinful, lost, and cursed. What does it mean that we are sinful? Well, sin, friend, is treachery. It's lawlessness. It's insubordination. It's hostility. And it's abomination. It's an abomination of cosmic proportions. We have not sinned. Listen. We have not sinned against a pauper. We have not sinned against a blind man. We have not even sinned against the Lord 
of the earth. We have sinned against the creator and the, the, the sustainer and the infinite God of the universe. Not some human king. Not some human lord, but the God of the universe. In Psalm 51, 1, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil and wrong in your sight. We have sinned not just against anyone, but against God. If you doubt your sin, probably the best way, and by the way, most of the world does, most of the world is really willing to admit that they aren't perfect, that they've slipped up. But God gives us a standard. What is that standard? A standard is His law. He's given us the Ten Commandments. And Jesus did something further. He summarized the law and the commandments in two. Do you remember what they were? Cross references on your sheet Matthew 22, 36 through 40. It's this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to understand if there's sin in your life, ask yourself this, have you perfectly at all times for all of your existence loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's a Jewish idiom for this, what? Love the Lord completely, fully, sacrificially, totally subordinately. If you have not, you have fallen desperately short. The word sin comes from the idea of missing the bullseye. It was an archery term early on. And we haven't even just missed the bullseye. We've missed the target completely. If God dwells in unapproachable light, then we dwell in complete darkness away from Him. Romans 5.12 says that we're dead. Titus 3.3 says we're disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various passions and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Friend, what does the Bible have to say about you and I? That our heart is deceitfully wicked and we cannot understand it. Let me give you an illustration if this would help. Imagine for just a second, this is probably the best way that I can understand it, that just for a moment I was able through some neurotechnology to understand all the thoughts and images that have gone on your brain in the last week. And we were able to burn those onto a DVD. And I said, Kyle, Kyle, stick that DVD in the computer. And for the next hour we watched a summation of your thoughts. How would you feel about that? God knows your inward thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows the thoughts and feelings you've had even towards your closest friends in the last week. He knows and sees that your heart is infinitely wicked. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said, it's impossible to slander the human condition. It's too bad. Friends, I could go on and on. I want you, I need you to understand that we are desperately sick, desperately sinful, desperately set apart from God. We are in darkness. Friends, the worst virus in the world is not the HIV virus. It's the SIN virus, and we've all got it. I was talking to some high schoolers downtown this summer at Music on Main, and I asked them if they understood what sin meant and that we were sinners apart from God. And One of them said, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? It's true, we are all sinners. We just read Romans 3.12, but the fact that we're in this together doesn't make it more any, any less despicable before God. Friends, we are desperate, desperate in a desperate situation. We are apart from God with no way, no way to work our way back. I want you to go to Mark 7. You're in Revelation. Go to Mark chapter 7. I want, to, I want you to go and understand Mark 7 because this. 
often we have a tendency of making excuse for our sin, don't we? It's our natural tendency is to put it on someone else or to put it on a circumstance. But Mark 7, 20 helps us with that. Follow along as I read. This is Jesus saying, that which proceeds out of a man, that is, is that which defiles the man. For within and out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. We just talked about those. Fornications, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed where? From within. And they defile the man. They defile the person. Friends, the problem is not out there somewhere distant and apart from you. The problem is inside of you. You are sick with a cancer and its name is sin. Now, if you've been thinking for any length of time of what I've talked about, you'll understand there's a problem. In fact, not just any problem, but I think it's not an overstatement to say the biggest problem in the history of the world This is the problem. Are you ready? Three words. God is good. Why is that a problem? That's a problem because you are not good. And if God is good and you are not good, then God must punish your sin. If you look at the next portion on your sheet there, you'll see that we have a great problem. God must punish our sin. There is a holy war, friends, that is going on between God and us, and it is a war that we will never win. Psalm 7, 11 through 12 says this God is a righteous judge, and a God who has indignation or righteous anger every single day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword, he has bent his bow, and he has made it ready. God is a judge, and if a man, if a woman, if a person does not repent, God has bent his bow, he has made it ready, and he will exact absolute justice. Rather than justice withholding his wrath and his anger, it demands his wrath and his anger. God is willing and able to cast those against him into hell for all of eternity. And justice doesn't stand in the way, it demands it. It demands that it must happen. Justice stands up and screams unashamedly the wrath of God against not just the sin. Listen to me. Not just the sin, but the sinner. God is angry with the wicked every day. God unashamedly sends men and women to hell, not gleefully, but frequently. The gate is narrow. The way is narrow. And there are few who find it. Justice demands that God must punish. He must execute judgment on this sin. His judgment is perfect. Imagine this. Perhaps the best way I know to illustrate it is imagine this. There's a huge dam. That dam is holding up a huge wall of water. That wall is your sin and iniquity. And every day, day by day, a stream flows into that lake. The dam grows taller. The dam is God's patience and forbearance. Oh, He is a patient God. He should have cut us off. He should have the moment we first sinned. And yet God is patient. And so He holds back His wrath. He holds back His anger against that sin. He's patient. He's forbearing. Not willing that any should perish. But every day, day by day, in the springtime, in the summer, In the heat, in the winter, that water pours in more and more sin. And friends, someday, 
someday, look at that verse. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men to die once. And after that comes the judgment. Someday that wall will be broken. That dam will be torn down. And at the bottom you will stand. In a wave of unimaginable proportions, the wrath and hatred of God will come storming down against you. And if you were 10,000 times the swimmer, if you had 10,000 times the strength that you did now, you will not escape it. God hates sin. He must punish sin. His eyes are too holy to look upon it. Jonathan Edwards says this, the bow of God's the bow of God's rather is bent, the arrow made ready in the string, and justice directs the bow towards your heart and strains at the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without promise of obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. God's patience is the only thing that keeps us breathing, but friends, someday that patience will run out. It is appointed unto men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And make no mistake, God will not pity at the judgment. Ezekiel 8.18 explains that God, when His patience is extinguished, to those in Judah who were taunting Him, it says this, Exodus 8.18, Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. I will not hear them. Friends, there will be a day, there will be a time where it is too late. God's justice demands that He must punish as a good judge our sin. The just punishment for that is death, eternal separation from Him in hell. Do you understand that? You need to hold this up to the Word of God and ask, is this true? And if this is true, what are the implications for my life? Justice does not forbid anger. Rather, it demands it. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He must do right. He must do right. One more passage. I want you to go to Luke 12. Luke chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking again. And He says this in Luke 12, 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and afterwards have no more that they can do. Who's that? That's mankind. They can kill the body and after that, no more. He says this, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Fear who? Fear God, friend. You need to understand that you have no reason to fear man. What can man do? They can kill your body. What can God do? If you do not repent, He has bent His bow, He has sharpened His sword, He has made it ready, and He will cast into hell. He will tread the fierce wrath of the winepress. This is the God of the Bible. But... It does not stop there. There's more to be said. The story is not over. This is not all of God. If the sword of the Spirit has truly done its work in your heart and pierced, and it's now the time that you know the healing balm of Jesus' blood, it's now time for you to hear this. 
This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you want to understand why it's called good news? That's why. God did not leave us in this miserable condition. Rather, He provided a way. That way, that truth, that life goes by the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. And God, because of His great love, sent Him and He lived a perfect life. A perfect life. There was never a moment where Jesus' eyes strayed to something that was evil and partook of it. There was never a moment where Jesus' feet went places where they shouldn't go. There was never a moment where God didn't see, God the Father didn't perfectly see Jesus' heart and didn't see anything but perfect purity and holiness. There was never a time where Jesus sinned either by commission or by omission. There was never a time, get this, There was never a time since the birth of Christ where he did not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was never a time where Jesus did not love God the Father completely and fully. He lived a perfect and holy life. Why is that good news? Because that perfect life, that spotless life, now listen to me, this is the best news you're ever going to hear, can be counted to you. It can be counted to you. I want to ask the question, what happened at the cross and how can it be counted to you? If Jesus lived a perfect life, if he never stepped up, if he never slipped up, even in the smallest way, but lived an entirely perfect and holy life, why does that matter? Well, it matters because of the cross. What happened at the cross? And friend, understand this. It took until about my sophomore year in college for me to understand this. I grew up in the church. I went to church every Sunday. I was not a Christian going to church every Sunday. It took until college for me to understand this. And when I understood this, it blew my mind. The crown of thorns, the nails in the hand, the the torture, the spear in the side, it wasn't merely those things that made Christ's perfect life substitute for us. It was this. It was this, that God in His perfect and infinite wisdom authored and made a way so Jesus' life could count for us in this. He made Him who knew no sin. Who's that? You know it. Jesus. You don't have many options, do you? God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we could become the righteousness of God. How did that happen? At the cross, when the Romans... Put Jesus on the cross. The Bible tells us that God poured out His holy hatred, His terrible anger and wrath against who? Against His beloved Son. For all of eternity's past, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son had existed in perfect unity and harmony, in perfection. And for the first time in all of history, God the Father turns His back on God the Son. And He damns Him. He crushes Him under the weight of His fierce wrath and anger. And that dam opens up and the time runs out. And the gigantic wall of water comes against who? It comes against Christ. And what happens? He absorbs it all. He takes it, even the last drop. So there's no wrath left over for the believer. Is that good news? Oh, it's good news. 
Oh, hallelujah, it's good news. That's why Jesus on the cross cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his wrath and his hatred and he bent his bow and he sharpened his sword and he put it against his only beloved son and he crushed him. Why? For our sake. He made a way under no compulsion from us. We had nothing to offer him. No good in us that he should love us or turn to us. He chose in his infinite love and his graciousness and in his wisdom to love us by providing a way. That's good news. That's good news, friend. I want you to look at the next verse there. A subverse. It's this, John 3.16. I would venture, if I could be so bold to say that there's probably not a person in here that hasn't been exposed to John 3.16. For God so loved the world, God loved the world in this way that He sent His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent His only Son into the world. He so loved the world, He sent His Son into the world to die for us. That we don't have to perish in our sin. That we don't have to be crushed under His wrath. But rather that Jesus can take and absorb the wrath, the weight of His holy anger. And it crushed Him. And He died. And He was put in a grave. And do you know what happened? Three days later, He rose again. Romans 4 talks about how He was raised for our justification. Listen, if you miss the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, you miss a huge part of the Gospel. Jesus was raised. What does that signify? It signifies that God was satisfied with the sacrifice. That no further sacrifice needs to be made. That you don't have to bleed yourself. Rather that the blood of the Lamb, the Holy Lamb, could atone, could make a way, could provide for your sin, could cleanse and wash and purify you. For there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And that's why Jesus said this. This is My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. God told the mountains in creation how high to go. And they trembled before Him and obeyed. He told the seas where they should go and He told them stop and go no further. He set the planets in motion and spun them in their orbits and said go this way and tilt this way and spin this way. And they bowed before Him and do still. And He told us, love me. And we said, no. And He chose to love us still. He made a way. Friends, this is such good news. This is such good news. Listen, if Christ didn't die, I, I hear sometimes people say, you know, if, this is, if Christianity really isn't true, like if Jesus really isn't the way, the truth, and the life, then I've lived a fun life anyway. I've lived a pretty full life and a moral life. I talked to a student a few weeks back who said, I think I can live by the Ten Commandments and that's good enough for me. That's not what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says this, If Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are of all men, we are of all people to be most pitied. Listen, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then I am wasting my life. I have given my life to study the Word, to Gospel proclamation. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, you realize that everything we love and believe and do is worth nothing? 
Listen, the historical resurrection of Christ is a fact. And you need to wrestle with the fact that if someone was raised from the dead three days later after they suffered and died on a cross, this is true. This is real. This is good. And it's worth giving your life to. It's worth loving and obeying. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This is good news, friend. I already said John 14.6, but I want you to look at the next verse on your sheet there. The true and living way. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus said to him, I am the way, you know this, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What an astounding statement. How foolish and ignorant to say that Christ was a mere mortal man who was a good fellow. He made claims of equality with God. He said He was the only way to God. And friends, this is radically exclusive. This is foolishness to those who do not believe. Christ said there is one way. You may be familiar with Acts 4.12 that says there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except that of Jesus Christ. There is one way and one way only. And so in a very real sense, the gospel is extremely and radically exclusive. In another way, listen to me. It's radically inclusive. Jesus says to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus' gospel, this gospel is radically exclusive. And at the same time, listen to me. It's radically inclusive. Why? Because there's no way you're going to earn this. This is available to who? To everyone, to anyone who would believe. This is good news for everyone, not for the good person, because there is none who are good. When we recognize that, we recognize that any can come freely and lay down their life and follow Christ. This is good news. Because it's open. It's radically exclusive. And it's also, listen, we miss this sometimes. It's radically inclusive. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands who? All men everywhere to repent. I want to tell you a story of a dear friend of mine who was uh, in Turkey for three years. And while he was there, he was trying to learn the language. And while he was seeking to learn the language, he thought, you know, I might as well memorize a verse, right? If I'm going to learn and understand the language. And he picked, of all verses, this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the verse we just talked about. God made him who knew no sin, it's a cross-reference on your sheet, to be sin for us. The reason he memorized this verse and, and sought to implement this verse into his evangelism and Turkey was because he thought, if I want to use one verse, this is probably going to be my verse. I want to tell you a story about when he met up with a young man, a Turkish man. Uh, Turkish people are nationally uh, Muslim. Not most of them. Uh, most of them, it's more of a cultural thing. But for many of them, they're Muslim. And uh, so my friend was talking to this young man, and he tried to tell him this verse. He tried to articulate it, but his Turkish was pretty broken and weak. And so he tried it again, and he said, I just don't understand. So he pulled out his notebook where he'd written it down and he said, no, well, I can't explain it well or I can't say it well, but read this. And he read it and he said, this is a bad translation. I said, why? Why do you think it was a bad translation? Because 
He understood what it meant. He said, this says that the Messiah became sin so we could become righteousness in God. And he said, that's exactly what it means. That is the truth. That is the apex of the gospel. Christ, the sinless lamb, the spotless Messiah, the perfection. One preacher said this about him, all perfections combined in perfect harmony to make him the one surpassing perfection. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. I want to close with this. Why is this good news? Well, it's good news because in this we get Jesus. It's not merely good news because it's news. It's good news for you and I, friend, because we can come to worship and know and follow Jesus. You can have all this world. You can have all its pleasures. You can have everything, but give me Jesus. That's what the gospel proclaims. That's what the gospel says. God hated sin so much that he crushed his son in his holy hatred so that we could have Jesus, this, so that we could come to have sweet and abundant life, so that we could walk in this fullness of life, fullness of joy, passionate obsession with Jesus. I hope because of tonight, because of your understanding of the fundamental truths of the gospel, that you are passionately obsessed with Jesus. That you can say in fullness of conscience, you can have it all. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. What a magnificent obsession. One pure and holy passion to know and follow hard after you. That is why the gospel is good news. The last portion on your sheet there says, so what? So what? Next week we answer that question. So what? If this is true, and friend it is, how does this affect you and I? Next week we cover our response. And what a great night to bring someone who doesn't know Jesus as we look at the true gospel among others as we review what we've talked about tonight. And let me give you a sneak peek as we talk about what biblical faith and repentance and true radical conversion is. Friends, why is this good news? Because this is the unsearchable riches. This is the unfoundable mercies and excellencies of Christ. Let me pray with you. Lord, what else is there to say? The rock of ages cleft for me. Let us hide ourselves in you. Lord, would the water and the blood from your wounded side flow? Would it cleanse us? Would it save from wrath? Would it be the double cure? Would it save from wrath and make us whole? God, would we grow to relish and adore? Would we have a magnificent obsession with your Son? Would we love him and know him and adore him and even this, proclaim him? more because of tonight, because of your word, because of the truth, because of the beauty, because of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. This is our prayer together. In the precious Messiah's name, amen.